Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on all podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Pandora, Stitcher, Audible, Adore Labs, and many more. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say, hey, Google or Alexa, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's corvettetodaypodcast.com. And while you're on the website, click on the link for the new Corvette Today merchandise store. There you can purchase Corvette Today hats, t-shirts, jackets, koozies, coffee cups, mouse pads, and much more. You can also sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at corvettetoday.ck.page. And don't forget, join the Corvette Today Facebook group. We now have over 2,800 members and growing, and I'd love to have you as a member as well. And I'm also excited to tell you about the new YouTube channel for Corvette Today. Be sure and check out your favorite Corvette Today podcast now on YouTube. First, I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette Today, Corvette Fever Magazine. Corvette Fever has been relaunched with an online and printed version. The online version has incredible interactivity with hidden photos and information, and the printed version is like nothing you've ever seen before, huge and glossy. Get your free online version at CorvetteFeverMag.com. You can also sign up for the printed version there as well. Corvette Fever Magazine, come along for the ride. Also, MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. If you'd like to join a new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. Also, a shout-out to canadiancorvetteforum.com, welcoming Corvette owners from around the world. My guest on Corvette today is an automotive engineer and a noted race car driver. He's had a long and distinguished career at General Motors, serving as the assistant chief engineer for Corvette and also the director of GM Performance Division. He retired from General Motors in October 2008, and he's a 2014 inductee into the Corvette Hall of Fame at the National Corvette Museum. He's affectionately known as Hein Rocket. He's Mr. John Hirensey. John, welcome to Corvette today. Hi, Steve. Hope you're having a good day. Thanks for inviting me to your show. It's a pleasure to have you on, sir. John, let's talk about your beginnings with General Motors. Talk about your college years because you earned a degree in mechanical engineering from South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, and you earned an MBA at Michigan State. So you're a Spartan. Then you started with GM in 1970. So talk about your career there in college and leading into GM and what you first did when you entered General Motors. All right. Starting out with the South Dakota thing, I was born and raised on a farm in South Dakota. Nice. And I finished my uh, grade school, high school there, and then went to school at South Dakota School of Mines and Technology out in Rapid City, South Dakota. Being from South Dakota and a farm kid, you can imagine I was a bit isolated the whole time I was there. When it got time to graduate from college with a degree and I started interviewing with companies, it was like I left the small town farm and entered into the big time because this was going to mean moving to a place like Michigan or some big city somewhere and have a whole different lifestyle. So it was uh, quite a huge change for me coming out to Michigan. I accepted a job with Chevrolet Engineering. I was into cars all the time as a kid. In high school, I was very into cars. Never really had any money to have any significant car myself, but a lot of my friends did and face it in the 50s and 60s. That's what a lot of the young guys were interested in the whole car culture. So I was very into it. And just being able to then get accepted for a job at Chevrolet Engineering was like the holy grail for me at the time. It was like everything I wanted to do since I was a kid was happening to me. And it was a pretty awesome experience. It's like a dream come true, wasn't it, John? It sure was. And that led you into becoming an assistant chief engineer for Corvette and then also the director of the GM Performance Division. So talk to me about the transition and what cars you worked on in those positions. All right. Transitioning from my start first at GM, I started in the training program. So I had a two-year training program. After one year, I had a military commitment. So I left GM and went into the Army. 
I had a two-year commitment, but with Vietnam winding down, I ended up only spending six months there and was able to then come back to GM in about 72, that would have been. Finished my training program. My training program itself was pretty exciting because I had a stint out at the Proving Grounds for three months, and that was incredibly enjoyable. The kind of cars that you run across Think about 1972, what you might run across. There's still a lot of 60s stuff, supercars that are kind of hanging around there. And I was able to latch on to a aluminum big block Corvette, the ZL1 Corvette. Although they called it a ZL1, it actually had a 454 aluminum engine in it rather than a 427. So they were already doing some wacky stuff at that time. And that was quite the piece to be able to get in and into and drive when I was out at the proving grounds. So just a lot of stuff like that that really gets your blood really boiling. You can't hardly help it when you run into that kind of thing. Absolutely right. And speaking of the proving grounds, your forte was in ride and handling there at Milford. Talk about the performance packages that you developed for like the citation, its domination in FCCA racing. Yeah, well, I started out as a test engineer there doing a few different projects, but then the new GM front-wheel drive program, the X-Car, was just kind of in its inception at that time, and I was asked to be a test engineer on that program. I started in testing what we call mule cars, which were cars that were cut up. At the time, we were using VW Rabbits, if I remember right, and we were sectioning them and making them longer and getting the wheelbase and track width right and all that and putting the powertrains in them and then testing them on the roads at the proving grounds. And this was mostly for durability and that kind of thing, but that's how I got started. And then as the program progressed and there became some prototypes being built of the Chevy Citation, I moved from being a test engineer to being a development engineer. And as a development engineer, specifically, I was assigned to doing right and handling work. There's lots of different things you can do in development. You can do noise and vibration and temperature testing and acoustics kind of things for noise. But I was fortunate enough to get into the right and handling part of it. And I really had never done any right and handling work at all before doing that. Other than that, I used to drive a lot and I was used to driving a lot. As it turned out, driving amongst other engineers at the proving grounds and even in high school, it turned out I could drive pretty fast, whether it was going in a straight line drag racing or driving around a road course of some sort. I quickly found that I was pretty fast amongst all my peers. Even in high school, without having a car of my own, my friends would get a car that would be like a GTO at that time, SS Chevelles. If they wanted to drag race somebody, oftentimes they would ask me to drive the car. On the citation, one of my friends, Bob DeCruff, was the lead development engineer for ride and handling on the car. And he worked on the standard suspension stuff, and I was assigned to do the optional suspensions. It would have been, at that time, we called them F40s and F41s. F41 was a common name for GM suspension packages for the kind of handling packages on all the car lines. I worked on those. At that time, the marketing group decided they wanted this kind of sport package for the Citation, and it ended up being called the X11. But all that was was a trim package on the car with an F41 suspension, and that came out in 79 when the whole car came out. And after we got that into production, the chief engineer on the program asked me if I was interested in you know, working on some kind of a performance version of it. And I said, yeah, damn right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. He kind of just turned me loose and I started working on it. And I worked on suspension, picking tires. I had wheels built for it, wider than anything we normally had used on cars by that time. I got the engine group to come up with an HO version of the V6. So they did a camshaft and compression and some other things to the engine, some breathing things. I came up with a package there. I worked on a cold air package for it. To fit that all in, we needed an induction hood. And so the body group did an induction hood for it. Needed some different transmission ratios, so got those done. Just a whole variety of stuff kind of made a whole package out of the car. Norm Schaller, the chief engineer, would stop out at the proving grounds every once in a while to see what I had. And when I had one car put together, they didn't even have the engine performance done in it yet. He was just really excited about it. He thought it was a really cool car. So he asked me to just keep going. We ended up getting the program approved and bringing it into production. And I guess it would have been 1981 as the X11, which at this time obviously had some graphics, but it had a lot more to it other than what was in the first one that came out in 79. Gotcha. Now, you started racing SCCA in 1984. Talk about your entry into racing, who got you going into it, how you got your license, and what car did you use to qualify? 
Right about when the X-11 came out in 1981, this would have been 1980, Ralph Kramer, who was the director of PR at Chevrolet at the time, called me up and said, hey, do you know that they're running your X-11 there in SCCA racing? And I said, no, tell me more about this. And I was really quite unfamiliar with SCCA racing at the time, but he told me uh, some of what was going on. And then I contacted SCCA and found out everybody in the country who was running a citation. And it was in the class, the uh, SSB class of SCCA. And I found out there were a number of people around the U.S. that were running them. Turns out there was one guy down in Dayton, Ohio, a doctor. His name was Dr. Bob McConnell. And since he was the closest one around, I gave him a call. Just found out his number and gave him a call and started talking to him about the car. And he told me what he was doing. And then I just started started kind of advising and helping him with the chassis and making the car more competitive for him. And he ended up winning the national championship with it in that year. Wow, that's amazing. During your 38 years at General Motors, John, you've worked on a number of cars. Cadillac, Firebird, Camaro, Cobalt, HHR, and obviously Corvette. You also served as the test driver for the performance division. Talk about those programs and the goals for each of those cars. When we started the performance division, that was around, let's say, 2000, I think it was at the time. Okay. The idea there was to show the world that GM could do more than they were doing with passenger cars and that kind of thing. And that we really wanted to show that the goals were straight out. We wanted to show we were the best at doing performance powertrains. We wanted to show that we were the best at doing performance vehicles. So those were pretty lofty goals when you think about the competition at the time. We'd done performance cars, certainly, but we hadn't done anything quite to that kind of a level. That's the direction we headed off in. One of our first projects was to do a performance version for Cadillac. Prior to starting the performance division, I knew Jim Taylor very well, who was the vehicle line executive for the Cadillacs. His office was just a couple down from mine. I was working on the Corvette, Camaro, and Firebird at the time. He was responsible for the Cadillacs. And so he and I had kind of lunchtime talks and that kind of thing about what he was envisioning doing with the Cadillac from a performance brand. I had already kind of had that experience with Jim Taylor and the Cadillac before I got assigned the performance division. Even back then when I was talking to him, I told him, if you get to do this, if you get this approved, I want to do it for you. Lo and behold, I ended up being assigned as the director of the performance division. Jim Taylor obviously came right away and said, I want to do a performance version of the Cadillac CTS. So we headed off in that direction to do one. Our goals were plain and simple. We wanted to beat Audi and BMW and AMG Mercedes, beat them at their own game in that performance luxury kind of car. That was our direction, and that's where we headed. That's where we started with going to the Nürburgring. Jim Merrill, who was at that time working on, he, I think he just started working on the Corvette. He was working on the STS Cadillac at the time. And one of the other engineers, Ken Morris, who's now a vice president of GM, was working on the CTS production car because we started working on the performance car before the production car even came out. And he was working on prototypes of the CTS and he was running them over at the Nürburgring because we all felt that that was the kind of DNA you had to have in the car. If you were going to do a performance car and try to compete with the BMWs and Audis of the world, we were going to have to do that because that's what they were doing. They were over there every day of the week testing at the Nürburgring. So we kind of started a program of going over there and Jim Merrill was running the STS over there and he came back and said, John, you got to get over there and see what's going on. And so I did. I went over and I actually had a C5 Z06 that I had over there. And I was using that car to learn the Nürburgring and get my licensing at the Nürburgring and just kind of get the groundwork going so we'd be able to test our performance division cars at the Nürburgring and get that kind of DNA into the car so that we can be competitive with the rest of the world. And that's kind of where that whole thing started with us, going over to the Nürburgring and running over there. And as a result, we took virtually every car we did in the performance division Part of its whole development and test plan was going to be going over to the Nürburgring two or three times a year and developing something over here in the U.S. that would be like the Nürburgring because we couldn't spend the kind of time at the Nürburgring that the guys in Europe do because they treat that as their test track on a daily basis. Right. 
Well, at the best, we're going to go over there for two weeks and spend two weeks and come back and maybe go back for two weeks later in the year. And that's a heck of a lot different than the 16 or 18 weeks they're spending every day going out there and testing a number of their cars. So we knew we had a big job in front of us. Very true. John, you've raced all over the world. Besides the Nürburgring, talk about the countries and the tracks that you've raced on. And do you have a favorite? Would it be okay if I kind of go back to the start of my racing a little bit and work up? Sure. All right. I talked a little bit about the X-11 citation and helping uh, Bob McConnell down in Dayton. At that time, there was also something going on at GM between the Camaro Group and Dick Gullstrand out in California. Dick Gullstrand was very interested in racing Camaros back when the 1982 Camaro came out. He had gotten a car from GM to do some chassis work on it, upgrade work and that kind of thing. And he ended up getting a deal to run the Camaro Z28 at Nelson Ledges at the 24-hour, which is the longest uh, 24-hour, longest day, they called it, at Nelson Ledges. He got a car, tuned it up, and ran it at Nelson Ledges and won the race there. Now, I had met him when he was coming to GM to get some engineering help on the Camaro and do some development on the car, getting it ready to race. I had had met him, and he invited me to come down to the race and uh, see what they were doing there. And so I did. As a result, I got to know Dick pretty well in 1982-83, and then at the end of 83, I had been working on the midsize cars like the Citation and the Monte Carlos and that kind of thing. And in 1983, at the end of that, I was assigned to be the development manager for Corvette. So as the development manager for Corvette, I had the group out at the Proving Grounds. But Dick Gullstrand then kind of graduated. He went from the Camaros running at Nelson Ledges to where he wanted to run a Corvette at Nelson Ledges and also running some other endurance races. And he had formed a partnership with Tommy Morrison to do that. They came and talked to Dave McClellan, who was the chief engineer of Corvette at that time, spent a lot of time with him and kind of got the ball rolling with them doing some development on the car and making it into a raceable car. So I was working with Dick Gullstrand and Tommy Morrison with their team. They purchased a couple of Corvettes, C4s at the time, and were doing testing on them, getting them ready to run in endurance racing, specifically starting at the 24-hour at Nelson Ledges. I let them know for certain that I was interested in racing myself, and I would really like to get into racing as a race car driver. Dick Elstrand advised me that obviously what I need to do is become licensed, and I had no idea what it even took to get licensed in racing, but he coached me to go to SECA and learn about what the racing licensing would be all about and what I had to do and what kind of schools and training I needed to do. So I decided I was going to head down that path, and that would have been starting in 83. And then I called my friend Bob McConnell down in Dayton, who had the X-11, and I talked to him about getting a car, leasing a car. I didn't even realize this at the time, but he had already purchased an 84 Corvette and intended to run it in SCCA. So he was going to be driving the Corvette in 1984, getting it qualified for the SCCA National Championships, and he wasn't going to be using his X-11. So he agreed to lease me his X-11 Citation, and I used that X-11 Citation to go to SCCA racing schools using that car and doing the SCCA schools. So that would have been in 1984. By May of 1984, I had qualified and got my beginner's license in SCCA. Tommy Morrison and Dick Gullstrand were running the Nelson Ledges race. They ran that. I went to that and hung with them there. And then the SCCA was starting a new endurance series for sports cars that was going to be starting in 1984, running two races. One was going to be, actually, there were several of them. The Nelson Ledges one was the first one. Then they were running a 24-hour at Mid-Ohio. And then they were running a, I believe it was a 12-hour out at Willow Springs. And Tommy Morrison and Dick Elstrand had two cars to run at the last two of the races. They had a couple test sessions, invited me to the test sessions, and I was able to drive the cars in the test sessions. And they decided that they wanted me to drive as one of the team drivers on the 84 Corvette that was going to be running. Starting at Mid-Ohio, I drove the 24-hour at Mid-Ohio, and then I drove the 12-hour out at Willow Springs. Did a decent job at those two races, and they asked me to be a regular part of their team, which is going to be a three-car team, starting in 1985, running the complete series of, I think it was 10, 12 races in SCCA endurance racing at the time. I entered into that, and that's what really kicked everything off with race car driving, was getting into that endurance driving in 1985. John, I tell you what, let's take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about your time with Corvette. We're with John Hirensey on Corvette Today.
VetFinders.com is the Internet's original Corvette classified ads website with classified ads starting at just $25. And every ad runs until your Corvette is sold. If you're in the market for a Corvette, VetFinders.com has over 500 Corvettes for sale from all around the USA and Canada and covering all eight generations. Visit VetFinders.com, the Internet's destination for buying and selling Corvettes. That's V-E-T-T-E Finders.com. Hey, honey, are you awake? Mm, I am now. I can't sleep. Since turning 50, I keep dreaming of a red door and a blue door, somehow knowing there are only choices for retirement. Okay. Through the red door, we outlive our money. We have to rely on our kids. We're stuck on a fixed income. It's terrifying. Yeah, that would suck. But through the blue door, our money outlives us. We retire on our terms. Our kids stay our kids, not our caretakers. We make work optional. Yes, that's much better. That's what I I want to, but what do we do? We call True Wealth and Company at 913-653-8783. They specialize in helping successful people make work optional. They're our fiduciary Blue Door personal wealth managers. Hey, where are you going? It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm going to check out True Wealth and Company online at retirewithtrue.com. That Blue Door is going to be our retirement. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth and Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me today is Heinrocket, Mr. John Heinrensey, the retired assistant chief engineer for Corvette and the director of the GM Performance Division. In segment number two, we're going to talk about John's time with Corvette. John, you became the development manager for Corvette in 1983 through 85, and then again in 1989. You were also the vehicle development manager for the C4 Corvette. Talk about that job and how you got started in Corvette. Well, I had been working on the midsize cars up until that point. One of my friends who was the development manager for the C4 Corvette was Fred Shaftsma. And Fred was leaving to go to another job. And he talked to me about moving to Corvette and doing that development job. Of course, that was something that I hadn't even really thought about doing before that. But as soon as he mentioned it, it was like the thing I wanted to go do. At the time, there was nothing at GM other than that. If I were to pick something, it would have been that. The car was just about to be launched into production as the 1983 and a half, 84 car. Right at that point was where I came in. So a lot of the pre-work had been done, but now there's a lot of the work involved in getting the car launched. And then all the, what I'd call continuous improvement, things that you do to a car from year to year to make improvements and that sort of thing. I could see with the car just coming out, if you remember right, when the C4 came out, there were a lot of complaints about its ride, that it was super stiff riding. And so there were complaints about that from the press. I felt the same way about it, that the car was very stiff riding. That obviously had the credentials for handling that go along with that kind of a stiff ride, but we knew we needed to do something for it, for the road. So I went about redoing all the chassis for the 85 car, both the base car and the optional F41 cars. Rick Darling was in my group doing ride and handling, and then I had people doing work on noise and vibration and all the other things that are associated with developing a car and making improvements on the car. Rick and I would work together quite a bit on the ride and handling and trying to get it moved in a direction that I thought the car should go. And we started at that time doing track testing, which they hadn't really had enough time to do very much track testing other than right at the proving grounds because of the availability of cars and that kind of thing. When you're doing a new car, prototypes are pretty hard to come by. They're very expensive. And if you damage one, they're not exactly replaceable. So you've got to be really careful about how you treat the cars and that you make sure they last through the program. So we started doing a lot of track testing and working on the ride and handling and getting things really tuned up and really made some big improvements for 1985, along with the new engine that came for 1985, which was the tune port. It had been the Crossfire when it came out in the first year, 1984, but then upgraded to the tune port in 1985. And then there were improvements to the tune port almost every year after, as long as that was in production. We also worked on getting the ABS going for the 86 model year. Changed the engine in 86, had more power, had aluminum heads put on it. So just that kind of stuff was going on every year. It was really a very exciting time at GM and the Corvette Group to be able to do those kind of changes year after year. Also, you were on the team that developed the C4 ZR1. Talk about the ZR1 for a minute. 
Yeah, that was pretty exciting. Dave McClellan, who was the chief engineer at the time, I'd have to call him a really big thinker, really good at coming up with ideas and with furthering the mark. He was really extremely good at that. And he wanted to do what he termed have the king of the hill in Corvette. The ZR1, back in the very early stages of development of different powertrains for that car, he was thinking king of the hill for the car when it would come out with whatever powertrain it was going to be. But back in the early days, the engine of choice at that time was, well, there were a couple of them. One was the turbocharged V6. It had a number of cars running around with that. And then the turbocharged V8 went from a turbo V6 to a turbo V8 and then went from the turbo V8 test cars to this program to do an all-new V8 engine working with Lotus to help with the design work on it and come up with this double red cam V8, which was what was finally approved to go into production with. So that was kind of how that developed along through the two or three years before the Lotus engine project with GM Powertrain came about and was approved to get the car into production in 1989 or 1990 was quite the program. I can imagine. And also that ZR1 set three world land speed records, and then the standard Corvette even set nine FIA international speed records. Those are remarkable. That was all a pretty exciting time. When we first started on the ZR1 program with the double overhead cam engine, the LT5, I was at Chevrolet at that time. I had gotten my master's degree in business, MBA, back in 1985. And when I got my degree, then I was promoted and became a product engineering manager in the Chevrolet marketing division. For the first couple of years, I had all the midsize cars like the Monte Carlos and Malibus at that time. The Citations, the Celebrity, I was trying to remember the other midsize car. So I was responsible for those cars at Chevrolet. And then around 1987, switched to being the product engineering manager for the Camaro and the Corvette, which again was a really exciting change for me to go into that area. And that's about when the ZR1 was really starting to get kicked off. So then at that time, got involved in that program. And the, the intention was to bring it out in 89 it was a very aggressive program. We weren't sure we could get it done in 1989 or 489 and ended up putting quite a few cars into production in 89. The decision was made by Chevrolet not to sell the 1989 cars. We actually had a program to build these cars in 1989. I think we could build something like we thought we'd build 400 of them in 89. Mm -hmm. But if you remember in 1990, there was a whole new interior coming in the car and Chevrolet kind of got cold feet about bringing out a ZR1 at the end of the year, only having a few hundred cars and then having a whole new interior in 1990. They kind of decided that wasn't the right thing to do from a marketing standpoint. They really wanted to go all out and just have the car come out in 1990 with the new interior. As a product engineering manager over at Chevrolet, I couldn't quite come to grips with that. I thought, what could be better than having only 400 cars that are 385 horsepower, king of the hill type cars like this? Right. To me, that just seemed like, wow, this is an opportunity. And to Chevrolet, it was like, how are we going to sell these cars? It's just not enough. They're used to doing this big program around having a lot of cars and getting them all into production and the dealers all have them and they're doing big marketing programs with it. And to be honest, they didn't know how to do it. They just couldn't come to grips with that. And they said, we really just need to get it to where we have a normal production. We're building as many of these as we can and do a regular introduction on it. So that was where we headed then instead for 1990. Once we got into production, Dave McClellan was thinking about, okay, what are all the different things we could really do to promote this car? And he got this idea of doing some kind of an event, let's say, that would really make a real splash for the Corvette, for the ZR1 in particular. About that time, I had been racing for a number of years, and my co-driver was out in California, Stu Hayner. And he and a marketing guy out in California had had a discussion talking about the world speed records and doing a world speed record. He called me up and asked me about something like that. And I thought, well, I'd have to look into this. I don't know very much about it, but it sure sounds like a cool thing to do. I had a discussion with Dave McClellan about it, and he got really excited about doing something like that. Stu Hainer was flying to Detroit to go up to Mossport for a race. I was going to be racing with him in a 24-hour race in Corvettes with Tommy Morrison. When he flew in, I said, let's drive up. And we got a hold of Tommy Morrison and said, let's go up there together. Let's talk about this. So we discussed it a lot that weekend at the races. And Tommy was all excited about working at getting sponsorship for it and that kind of thing. He had mobile sponsorship on the cars for racing that year in the endurance racing. 
He talked to Mobile about it. He talked to EDS about it. He talked to Delco about it, to Goodyear. So he was all about drumming up the sponsorship. And meanwhile, Dave McClellan got really excited about it. And so part of what we were doing at GM then was making sure that we thought we knew the car well enough to know that it would be able to set these records. But we really wanted to kind of do the nuts and bolts work ahead of time to understand for sure that we'd be able to go out and actually do these records because it was going to be a really big deal to get it done. It's not the kind of thing you like to fail at when you start down that road. So we got going with it. The car we actually used for it was a car that had been used for some of the development for the ZR1 doing engine development, what I'd call an engine mule. And so since the car was now in production, we no longer needed that engine mule. So that car became then the lead car that would be used for setting this record. And we went through a certain amount of preparation for it, obviously a lot of safety preparation, but also looking at what it takes to go 24 hours and to really optimize it with the average speed for 24 hours, because that's what this record was about. It would be the average speed that you would run for 24 hours, running straight for 24 hours. Right. The average speed would be the record that you would then set. So we wanted to make sure we would minimize the number of pit stops we would have to make for fuel, maximize the potential for everything being able to live for the engine, the transmission, the drivetrain, everything being able to live for 24 hours without a problem. Because if you have a problem, that amount of time you're working on the problem gets factored in and your average time goes down pretty dramatically when you're not running. So we needed to make sure that the car would continue running. We did things like installed a 45-gallon fuel tank on it. Wow made sure that we understood what kind of RPM we wanted to run. So we talked to the engine group about what they felt like was the right RPM range to run the engine in for 24 hours. And so made sure we had the gearing right and the speed right to be able to run in that range. Went and ran the event. The rest is history. It just worked out about as well as you could possibly want it to work out. We had one problem right towards the end of the run where the fan shroud on the radiator came loose from the attachment and they started rubbing against the radiator hose, the lower radiator hose, and wore a hole in the radiator hose. And while the car was running, we had telemetry on the car, which was almost unheard of at that time to have telemetry on race cars and test cars. But one of the things that we were monitoring was the coolant temperature and immediately the coolant temperature started to increase and spike up and we called the driver in immediately found out the problem and made the repair and continued running. But it actually took the average speed down about, I think, a mile and a half an hour just from making that repair of the hose. That was for the 5,000-mile record. We actually set the record for 5,000 kilometers, took about 18 hours. The 24-hour record took, obviously, 24 hours. As we're completing the 24 hours, I'm on the phone with Dave McClellan telling him what we've done. And he says, well, what can you do next? Why don't you just keep running? <laughs> <laughs> we've already been running for 24 hours. We're thinking, oh, man, I don't know. And I talked to Tommy Morrison. He said, well, what's the next record? Jim Miniker, who worked at GM, was very tuned into the record. He knew him very well. And he said, well, the next record is 5,000 miles. Well, how long will it take us to do that? And he said, well, it'll take us about 30 hours. So we'll have to run another six hours. I was on the phone with Dave and he said, keep running, keep running. If you can do it, keep running. Amazing. And so we did. We just kind of, within a half hour of doing the 24 hour, we had made the decision, we're going to keep running and go for the 5,000 mile record. And so we did that. We kept on going and ran the 5,000 mile record. And it was during that last six hours when we had the problem with the radiator hose that reduced the speed for 5,000 miles. But even the reduced speed was way above what the previous record was. That's amazing. So we set a new record there with that. What a great story, John. Hey, also, you're known as the father of the C4 Grand Sport. As a matter of fact, you own Grand Sport number one. You still have it. Yes, I do. Talk about that and the development of the Grand Sport. Let's see. I became the assistant chief working for Dave Hill now. Dave Hill replaced Dave McClellan as the chief engineer in about, I think it was 91 or 92. And we had the 92 car come out with the LT1 engine. But at that same time, the work was really starting to get going on the C5 car, which was going to come out in 97. And you'd think, wow, that's five years. It doesn't take five years to do a new car, does it? Well, the actual engineering of the car is more like a three-year thing. But for a couple of years before that, you're working on what you're really going to do for the car. What's the engine going to be? What's the chassis going to be? What's the structure going to be? So you kind of figure out what all that's going to be. And then once you have the basics understood, then you kick it off and you actually engineer it for production. And that's what takes maybe three years. 
And the time before that, you're working on mules and development cars and testing out different ideas and trying to narrow down what it is you really want to do. So Dave Hill, who is the chief engineer for the Corvette, he took on doing the C5 and working out those issues and then working the engineering of the car, getting it into production, and left me with doing the C4 car starting in, I believe it was 1992. So from 92 on to 96, I was going to be responsible for the C4 car. He would do the C5. Well, as we're getting to the end of the life of the C4, I would say this was about in 94 because you're always doing the engineering. You know, the 95 car comes out early in 94. The 96 car would come out early 95. Right. So somewhere a year before that, we were looking at what we might do for the last year of the car that would be special. And the program manager of the car at that time was Russ McLean. So Dave Hill and I both worked for Russ McLean and Russ was like the overall manager of Corvette. He really wanted to see there be something special for the 1996 he got Chevrolet very interested in doing something special for it. So he came to me and said, Heinrichy, what can we do that's special for 1996? <laughs> <laughs> so we talked to design staff. John Caffaro was responsible for the design work on the C4 and talked to him about it. And he had this idea of doing a Grand Sport lookalike car. And he had some designs done on paper, did some drawings for it, and came up with this blue with the white stripe kind of thing. Russ and I talked to Powertrain about if there was anything special we could do on an engine, and they came up with the LT4 possibility of doing something like that for the car. And then amongst other things, the ZR1's out of production, so let's use the wheels and tires from that car and make something on the Grand Sport that would uh, utilize that. And so all of this stuff just kind of comes together. Obviously, you got to work with Chevrolet Marketing. Hopefully, they have a warm and fuzzy about the car that it would make a cool car for the last year. We set about getting that car engineered and into production. And that was another really fun project. We actually, that same year, we did the collector edition car. There's kind of an interesting story if you want to hear it about how that one came about. Sure. Working with Chevrolet Marketing, they had some concern about the Grand Sport in that it was kind of a different car from what the dealers were used to having to sell there. It was going to be different looking. It was going to be a low volume because of the paint scheme and the stripe on it. Working with the plant, we determined the most we would be able to build would be a thousand of them. With the engine and the other parts in the car, it was going to get to be a little on the expensive. You know, they're used to a special edition, maybe being a thousand dollar kind of thing. And here we're looking at something that's going to be several thousand and not have very much volume. And they were really interested in something that could keep the volume of the car for that year too. Not just have a special edition that people would be really interested in buying, but something that would help to hold the volume for the overall car. This was before 1995, but we were about to come out with a couple new colors for 95. And one of them was this metallic silver, which I thought was just an awesome color on the car. When we looked at the prototypes, I thought, this car is beautiful. I talked to John Caffaro and I said, John, if we want something that's high volume for 1996, why don't we look at doing this Grand Sport, which has got more power and really got handling, bigger tires and all that kind of stuff, but it's a low volume. What if we did a collector edition car that was a silver car? And what would you do to that to make it look special and have it be a really cool collector car? Is it just the color has got to be enough? And he was very excited about that and wanted to go the same way. So then it was a matter of now let's sell that to Chevrolet because this was going to be one of their signature colors for 1995. And here I am going to Chevrolet and telling them, let's not do that for 1995. Let's save that for 96 and do a collector edition. And you'll be able to sell what at that time I probably said a pile of cars. <laughs> That's a beautiful car and you're going to be able to sell a bunch of them. So we built one of them and showed it to them and they got real excited about it and said, okay, we're going to cancel this color for 1995. We're going to make it a 96 and we'll call it the collector edition and do the badges and everything and probably be able to sell a lot. The dealers were excited about them. And so that's the way it went forward. We did both those cars for 1996 and 96 had a surprising volume. I mean, everybody was really amazed at the last year of a car that's now been in production for 13 years and still be able to sell that kind of a volume in 1996 with a new car coming out the following year. It worked out really well for Chevrolet. They were really happy with it. And obviously we got to have a lot of fun doing it. Very nice. What a great story. John, let's get personal a little bit. I know that you're so dedicated to racing. I mean, your nickname is Heinrocket. Talk about what happened in the paddock at Sebring in 1993. It's a great story. Okay. I've got to tell you, now I've got to give you a little background here for this too. Okay. In the 93-94 timeframe, Tommy Morrison wanted to run the Corvette with his team down at Sebring in the 12-hour Sebring and at the 24-hour in Daytona. 
we had tried that before and hadn't been as successful as we wanted to be. And we knew we had to do something kind of special to be able to compete against what we were going to see at Daytona in those classes and at Sebring. We had done some aero work at the wind tunnel at GM on race car parts on the C4. And so we had some knowledge about what would work there. And I showed some of that stuff to Tommy Morrison and he got excited about it and said, wow, can I build some of these? I'd like to build them. And so he kind of went off to build some of those to be able to race them. And I was at the same time thinking graphically, you know, if we're going to do this grand sport for 1996, how cool would it be to take that appearance package and run it on the race cars like this 94, 95 timeframe and have those be the race cars. And this is what the race car looks like with this blue color and this white stripe and the red hash marks on the fenders. How cool would it be to race those prior to the car then coming out as a production car in the Grand Sport? We won't call it Grand Sport, but we'd have it look like this. And so I kind of ran the trap line with that at Chevrolet and with Chevrolet PR because obviously they want to do a PR campaign around the 96. And a lot of times they're not interested in having this exposed before it comes out because that's not going to help them to do their PR campaign. They got on board with it and say that sounded really cool. So we actually used a livery on those cars that looked like the Grand Sport for 1996 and ran it in racing and were successful with it. And then that led into the car coming out in 1996. But that kind of leads me back then to 1993 when we're running at Sebring. I had gotten engaged to Rita and we were talking about the second marriage for both of us. And we were talking about where we were going to get married and what we were going to do. And we talked about going down to maybe Jamaica, get married there or something like that. I was telling Tommy Morrison that we were going to get married somewhere around the race so that we had to be careful about when we were going to be testing and that kind of thing. Because I was going to be getting married sometime in that time frame and needed to carve out the time to do that, obviously. And he said, well, why don't you get married down at the race? And I thought, wow, I don't know. Could we really do that? And he said, well, sure we could. <laughs> it's easy for you and I to say we could, but I have to talk to Rita about this and see what she thinks about that. So I talked to her about it and she got excited about it and said, you know, that sounds like it'd be really cool. Why don't we do that? Wow. And so we set that in motion and we ended up going to the race. Ahead of time, I contacted the chief marshal about the fact that we would get married in the paddock. And I actually talked to him about it and said, would you marry us? I knew him quite well, and it would really have pleased me a lot if he'd have said yes. And by golly, he said yes to doing it. So we had the chief marshal signed up to actually marry us in the paddock. And we had the car set up with a nice awning over it, you know, and Tommy Morrison brought in catering. So we had catering for the people who were there after we got married. And right there in the afternoon after we were done testing, Rita and I got dressed up and Tommy was my best man. And Tommy's wife was Rita's bridesmaid. And we got married right in the paddock, right around the race cars with the chief marshal helping us with the vows and everything. So that was, that was really cool. That's a fantastic story. And let's talk about your induction into the Corvette Hall of Fame in 2014. What a tremendous honor for you. Yeah, it was. People talk about their bucket list and the things they'd want to do. I'd have to tell you that if I were to tell you my bucket list and what's on that bucket list, almost everything came onto that bucket list. I'd call it postmortem. It was something I already did because my bucket list is made up of things that I did that I never really ever thought about doing. They're not something that you can think ahead and plan out and say, what, if I could ever do it? this is what I'd want to do. It'd be this. The Museum Hall of Fame was one of those things. I, I never really thought about being in the Hall of Fame. And so it wasn't something that you'd put on the bucket list. But after you go through it and get on the Hall of Fame, you realize that's one of the things it turned out to be such a fantastic thing. My good friend Fred Galash nominated me for it. I didn't know about this at the time that he went through the nomination and put together the package and ended up talking with a lot of my friends to help with interviews and that kind of thing to put the package together. We went down there, had my family down there. It was a very big event. I think the induction ceremony had like a thousand people at it. Wow. Jerry Burton, he was one of the guys who got inducted that year also. It turned out to be a great thing. And for me, when I talk to the people in the audience about it and talk about what you did, they want to know what you did to be in the Hall of Fame. And I think I didn't really do anything. I just did my job. I worked on the Corvette and I just, once I got working on the Corvette, I worked on it as hard as I knew how to work on anything. You make the car as good as you can make it. And the reason you're making it this way is for all the people who buy them and for all these people in the clubs that live and breathe Corvette every day. They're the people that are really the special people. And you're just one of these people who come along and you're part of what makes the car special for them. 
it almost feels like you shouldn't be the one that's honored in the Hall of Fame. It should be all of them who are honored. This was a real humbling experience. And very worthy, my friend. Very, very worthy. Let's take our final break, John. And in our third and final segment, we'll talk about life after GM on Corvette Today. American Hydrocarbon, your one-stop shop for custom interior, exterior, and engine bay items for your C4 through C8 Corvette. We can help you create a custom look for your Corvette with carbon fiber or 10 different color patterns and styles. We've served customers in over 28 countries all around the world. Whether it's a custom-made engine cover for your new C8 mid-engine Corvette or custom-made C4 interior upgrades, American Hydrocarbon can help you transform your Corvette into a best-in-class show car. Our products have been featured in VET and Corvette magazines, so give us a call. 813-476-5638. That's 813-476-5638. Visit our website at AmericanHydrocarbon.com or email us at pat at AmericanHydrocarbon.com. Let us help you make your Corvette the car you've always wanted it to be. American Hydrocarbon. This is the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me is Mr. John Heinrocket, Heinrocket, as they call him. John is the retired assistant chief engineer for Corvette and also the director of GM Performance Division. In this third segment, we're going to talk about life after General Motors. John, after your retirement, you were in with GM for 38 and a half years. You became the chief engineer for Hennessy Special Vehicles how did you get connected with John Hennessy, and how did you get that job? Well, when I retired from GM, I think a lot of people retire, maybe not so many, I don't know, but I think a lot of people that I know anyway retire and they kind of have a plan for retirement on what they're going to do, whether it's get another job or I'm going to spend all my time volunteering or whatever. And I have to say, I retired from GM and really didn't know what I was going to do. There were some things I was already doing, like racing. Well, I'll keep on racing. I still love racing. I'm going to do that. But as far as what I'm going to do, I thought I was going to work. But what I was going to do or how I was going to do it, I really didn't know. I had already started my racing business back in, I think it was 1999, that I incorporated Heinrocket. And so I was on the side doing a bit of driver training and vehicle development, helping some people with their race cars and that kind of thing. But it was kind of small time. So when I retired, I thought, well, I'm going to head in that direction even more and I'll publicize it a little bit. Obviously, need to get some business cards and work around people I know in racing and kind of formalize maybe the driver training thing a little bit more. Do some consulting with race teams or people who are developing cars. Maybe I can do some consulting with them. And lo and behold, out of the blue, John Hennessy calls me. He and I had some friends that I didn't even know we were both friends with, but Joe Jacuzzi was one of them, who was a PR guy at Chevrolet at the time. And he was a good friend of Hennessy. And he mentioned to John Hennessy that I was retiring. If John had any interest, he could give me a call. And right out of the blue, John called me up and said he was interested in potentially working with me. And would I like to come down and spend a couple of days with him and talk about what he's doing and see if there was any good fits. And it kind of went on from there. I went down and we hit it off really well very like-minded and thought a lot alike. We started off a program where I would come down occasionally and spend a day or two down there with look at what he was doing with different work on different cars and where I might be able to help him with develop the cars and kind of up his game a little bit in the development arena. Right around the same time, he made this decision to do a supercar. Almost immediately, I got involved in this supercar, which was built off of a Lotus platform and putting a small block V8 in the back of it. So this car was two foot longer and a foot wider than the Lotus and had a complete new rear end on it and a new front end on it. And all it used that was Lotus was the cockpit itself. And we went through a number of different powertrains with it. We started out with LS7s as a powertrain, then the supercharged, the LS9 engine that came in the ZR1 Corvette back in 2009. And the idea was that there'd be optional engines on it quickly went beyond that. Nobody wanted the base engine. They wanted the hottest engine. It was quickly apparent to John that he needed a much hotter engine yet beyond that. Immediately started developing the twin turbo V8, which then became the only engine in the car. That's the only thing everybody wanted. And then John also had a couple of different ideas. He wanted to take the car over to Goodwood Festival of Speed. And of course, that was something that once I went there, I realized was on my bucket list too. 
And so John wanted to do that with his Venom GT at the time, the first one. And so we took that over there and it was just a blast. I mean, it was so much fun. That whole weekend is incredible. If you've never been there, Steve, you've got to do it. I would love to, John. That's one of my bucket list items as well. Also, you drove the C8 around the Circuit of the Americas. Talk about that lap and also what was your impression of the new mid-engine C8 Corvette? That was really fun. It was everything I had dreamt that a mid-engine car would be from the time when I was at GM working on the Corvette. We all talked about mid-engine cars and the possibility of doing that someday. Here was my chance to drive it once it came out at the Circuit of the Americas. It's a great track to drive it at and just really good fun. We were quite quick with the car and it really impressed the other people who were there. Also, John, talk about Hein Rocket Incorporated and tell us what Hein Rocket actually does. Well, Hein Rocket is a business, I can tell you a little bit where the name came from. It was back in 89, as a matter of fact, I was racing for Eddie Makeham, and Eddie Makeham is Dana Makeham's dad. He had a race team running Camaros in the Firehawk series. Eddie called me about racing with him in that series, and I did. And two of the other people were Mitch Wright, who ended up being the general manager of the racetrack down in Bowling Green at the museum. And then a guy whose name was Leighton Reese. And Leighton Reese had a garage in Minneapolis called Leighton's Garage. And I'd known Leighton for a number of years as a racer. He ended up being one of the drivers on that team. With all the racing that year, every time we went to the track, I was the fastest in the car and I would set the pole with the car for the race. And Leighton was always working hard to try to beat me and he never could quite do it. He ended up calling me the rocket when I get in the car. And then he called me one day, he called me the hind rocket. It stuck just like that. <laughs> so when I decided to incorporate and have a business, I decided to call it Hein Rocket Incorporated. So that's how it got the name. The business that Hein Rocket did, especially after I retired, was driver training. So I would work with race car drivers who wanted to get better at what they were doing and at their craft. And so I would develop these programs to help them improve their driving would work with race teams, helping them to develop cars. So that was another thing I would do. Another part of it was expert witness and forensics engineering. I had a number of different projects that came out of that where I probably fell into several different categories. One would be accident investigation. John, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what is the website and how can they reach you? My website is heinrocket.com. The email through there is john at heinrocket.com. Perfect. John, thank you so much for being my guest on Corvette today. The stories were absolutely phenomenal. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun remembering them and being able to talk about them. A couple of times it almost brings a tear to my eye just thinking about some of the things and how much fun they were and how much I remember them. Ladies and gentlemen, John Heinrensey from Heinrocket.com. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.